Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Episode six of the Liberty Portal podcast. Today, I'm joined by the usual suspect, David Rand, the devil of Montana politics. And we have a new face in the room, Kyle Mack. Kyle, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you do. Uh, my name's Kyle. I'm a degenerate crypto bro uh, and a pudgy penguin cl- collector. You can find me on Twitter at Captain Quigley, my alias. <laughs> Perfect. We've got Kyle on for a fun show today. We've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about, a lot of not so cool stuff to talk about. We're going to look at the Tyre Nichols murder. We're going to look at uh, Russia and Ukraine, as usual, our favorite foreign conflict. Some good news for a change, or is it actually really good news involving Mr. Beast? And a bunch of other really interesting things. David, before we get started, uh, I think we need to respond to some comments from YouTube. Oh, right. Yes. You want to do that? Yes, please. Oh, okay. Great. So for those of you that don't know, we do publish this show on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube right now, please do like and subscribe. Smash that like button to help us smash the state. How do you like that? I love it. Yeah. Uh, so we had a couple comments that came through on our last few videos. and We want to address those because there are some really interesting questions posed. Um, and if you ever want to suggest a topic for us to talk about or challenge us or question us, please do it on YouTube in the comments. This first one comes from Tomas or Thomas. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, he says, in response to our talk about Davos and about ESG and about eating the bugs and not owning anything, the subscription model, uh, he asks, or he says, rather, ownership makes you independent. Renting makes you dependent. Who appoints the owners? Is there going to be a vote? If owning nothing would make people happy, would owning everything make a few lords unhappy? Why would they then volunteer for unhappiness? Isn't the constitutional right to own property meant to prevent slavery? And he goes on, and it's it's a rather long comment, but he asks a lot of questions. Why don't we dig in on that first one? Ownership makes you independent. Renting makes you dependent. David, what do you think about that? Totally true in a lot of levels. I, I could see where he's coming from with that sentiment. The trick is, is who decides? And I think that was a lot of the discussion that we had about Davos. Is says a lot of people are saying the WEF is going to centrally plan and make all this stuff happen. And I'm saying, where do we? why do we believe that? I feel like there was a moment where everyone decided that the WEF was the same thing as the UN or the US government or a global cabal of lizard people that actually control everything. And everyone just decided that that's actually that they're that powerful. And I'm like, I'm not sure they are. I'm not sure exactly what they are. I know they're a private organization founded by Klaus Schwab to as a social club for him to get across his ideas and what he thinks is important in global issues and concerns. But I don't know that they actually do that. Now, there's a lot of powerful people in the room, but what can they do? So when when the whole campaign of uh, you'll own nothing and be happy is that was that was that was that yeah, what it was that was the big one well that did come out of the UN though well, that, yes that but slogan. Uh, one of the things I said and uh, it was that there's two ways to look at that one is the work of uh, and I should have looked it up I haven't looked it up it's a Duke University economist that was projecting out uh, the the logistical ability to deploy resources more efficiently and what that might mean in the long term for our for our economy the uberization of everything is how right. you described it right 
where you don't have as much stuff, but you rent things very efficiently. So there's less things that are being moved. You move things around, so there's less things that need to be owned. Now that is a place that's a vision of the economy where it might be that free that people freely choose. And I think what's interesting about his comment is it kind of begs the question, is this a good thing? Is this a thing that we actually want? Totally understandable, right? Just because it's something that arises spontaneously in the economy doesn't mean it's a good thing. The question is, is if people freely choose it, do we want to use government to prevent it from happening? Right. Well, and I think that is the big question and really determining, you know, what is it that we want and what culturally do we want to promote or uh, not promote, right? Kyle, I know that Davos and the WEF get you a little fired up. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've actually read some of Klaus Schwab's uh, books and I think your what you pointed out about how much power they actually have is very accurate. Like what the, at the end of the day, what they are is like, they're a social club for elites and they're a, and they're just like bouncing ideas around. And some of these elites do have power. Some of these elites don't have power. Um, some of them, you know, they can make some of the changes that they want to make. Um, and some, some of their things are not going to go through in the end of it. Um, at the end of the day, I think that the world is sort of kind of waking up to their grand vision that they're trying to lay out across like the Western world. And their their goal would be to kind of globalize their entire vision. But there's so much pushback that's coming in. I, I think at the end of the day, I, I think that their grand vision is kind of falling apart a little bit right now. Mm -hmm. I think we're watching that with the with all the different political elections that are happening in places like you know, all the conflict that's happening in Brazil, the the political divides that are happening in Italy. I think the, kind of like the Trump moment was uh, a big factor in kind of bringing this all into public consciousness. You know, at the end of the day, it's all a war of ideas. So I don't really know, like Klaus Schwab, like he's he's a factor in this, but I don't know. I don't know. No, that's, a good, that's all good points. I mean, and I think when it comes to this and his specific responses, well, who owns these things? Well, if, private, if a private company does, and they rent you that thing. And I think the example I used last time was a drill. If you if you don't own the drill, but the rental agency does, does that matter to you? Well, that's according to your values. Now, if your values is, I want to own all my stuff and I don't want to have to rent anything, then go do that, right? Right. The question is, is our values objective? Is there a value that's so objective you must force everyone into the same vision for that value? One of those values could be human life. We say value, human life is so objective, we want a government to protect it, period, right? If that's what you're saying, then that then all your politics flows from that those sets of values. Now, if you say it's uh, ownership is a value, everyone has to own what they own, and there is no renting, well, that would be a problem. Right, I can't rent a movie from the store. I can't. I can't rent. Well, why can't I rent? Right, it's an issue of, of free choice. Right? right, absolutely. And that's and I think that's the libertarian insight is if it's freely chosen, then we reveal our values because one of the key um, observations, and this is you know from Mises's uh, you know, liberalism, as well as use of knowledge in society by Hayek, is that a lot of our values are internal. They're not seen by the world. They're all there's something in our head, an ordinal ranking of what we care about. Ordinal meaning. Uh, 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 numerically starting at one, ending at whatever, right? So the first thing I value one, the second thing I value two, three, four, five. And so when I'm, when I'm in my mind, it's all subjective and you can't tell what it is. It's when I have choice in a state of freedom that I can then live out those values and select value number one, and then go do something about it, buy that thing I want, decide to rent my home or decide to buy a house. Right. So as it pertains to Tomas's comment, 
you know, and he also says, by the way, who elected activists to impose their will on society? Well, nobody really. And so if his values say that ownership of property is of utmost importance, then he needs to stand up and he needs to do something about it and he needs to protect that. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Right. And and that's how it becomes an objective thing, right? It becomes objective when we go do something in the world about it and everyone can see, oh, he values this, not this. Yep. But until then, we don't. So that's that's why socialism doesn't work. That's also why liber- libertarianism is such a powerful idea for social change because we allow people to express what they actually think. We, we give people the opportunity for actual virtue or to live out the values of their social vision. Totally. And actually speaking of, oh, sorry to cut you off there, Kyle. Go ahead. Get you in on this next comment. I want to jump to uh, one from Jason Chastain, who speaking of libertarianism says, as a conservative who loves the libertarian influence on the Republican Party, my biggest beef with the libertarian party has always been this. You don't go from high school straight to the Olympics without training. The Libertarian Party keeps picking jokers to run for president, and they haven't built up successful congressmen and senators and governors who can grow a following. He goes on, but Kyle, what are your, what are your thoughts on this in terms of the conversation about uh, these great political ideas that we have, but maybe not necessarily having the traction that we need or the training that we need to translate those ideas uh, to the real world? I'm a fan of the the Mises caucuses model for the Libertarian Party and the recent takeovers that have been happening. I like the vision that people like Dave Smith are pushing forward of using this third party as a vehicle for almost like a, with the expectation of, we're not going to win the election, obviously, as a third party, at least at this point in time, but pushing a vision forward in sort of that Ron Paul manner that wakes people up to everything that's happening in the country with the, with the two parties, with the corruption, with all of that, and just kind of like getting more people on board, almost using the libertarian party as a, uh, evangelical tool. I, in the sense, like if we're kind of bringing people into our cult of libertarian libertarianism, um, don't I, tell people it's a cult. It's, yeah. We're trying yeah. to keep that on the DL. At the end of the day, everything's a cult. <laughs> yeah, you got to understand, Kyle's model of cult is you believe something, cult. It's, you know. <laughs> everything, we're, we're all just like building our own little mini religions right now. Um, and, you know, politics have become kind of the new religion of the new age, uh, in, at least in my framework of how I see the world. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of kind of using that as a visionary tool going forward. I'm not particularly convinced that politics are going to make this like like the actual political structures of the two parties are going to make any meaningful change. You might be able to like slow down the growth of government, slow down the bureaucracy. But at the end of the day, these uh, these systems, these institutions, they exist to grow. And we need people in there kind of fighting and also putting visions forward while we're building the new things coming coming up. That's kind of my general game theory of the libertarian you know, where they stand in this landscape right now. Right. That makes a lot of sense. David, from your perspective with, you know, your focus on local, state, and regional politics, you know, what can, I mean, obviously we talked about this and this comment was in response to our conversation about the strategic use of a libertarian party as not necessarily the spoiler, but, but, you know, wielding its influence to try to pull Republicans, pull Democrats into more libertarian policy positions, which has had some success. You know, what else do you see coming down the pipe where libertarians can be um, strategically relevant and ideologically influential? You mean in terms of particular races or particular policy issues? Um, Let's go with policy issues. Yeah, so policy issues. I think libertarians have a great opportunity to make the Democrats better on criminal justice, uh, on issues 
where Democrats want to come across as being not socialists, they can really come in on 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 the here. What we want is free association side of things, uh, and then for Republicans, obviously on the pro uh, anti-war uh, side, if they want to differentiate themselves from the Democrat Party, that's become very much uh, a bloodthirsty uh, affair at the moment. Uh, when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine and even even looking at Taiwan and China, they have a tremendous opportunity to differentiate themselves by talking more libertarian on those issues. Once they do so, libertarians saying, "Hey, if you if you are willing to commit to this broader than this narrow issue area, then we won't run in your race." Maybe I think that's a that's a great role for the libertarians to play to push it to play a strategic role in pushing the two other two parties their direction beyond just offering up big ideas and willing to advocate for them. Uh, and uh, and we're talking about this like the LP is libertarianism. And while uh, I agree with Henri, it's nice to have a libertarian party that's more libertarian. Uh, we want to differentiate those things. There's tremendous amounts of things you can do as a libertarian person who values liberty, person who values a free society. That's how I define libertarianism right now. That has nothing to do with party politics or elections. There's lots to do there too when it comes to policy advocacy and just making a difference in the Republican Party or in the Democrat Party. If that's if those those aren't good alternatives for you, right? Totally. Yeah. On the uh, anti-war note, I I just saw a tweet from Angela McCardle. It looks like she is or the Libertarian Party is establishing some sort of uh, peace rally or anti-war rally in response to what's going on in Ukraine. I don't know a ton about it, so more to come on that in the future, but it seems like, you know, even in, in uh, since we've discussed the entrepreneurial opportunity mm-hmm. to create some of these, these pushback movements, uh, things have actually started to happen in just the last week. So that's awesome. Also kind of piggybacking on what Dave said, I, I very much believe in like an all like a multifaceted attack if we truly believe in liberty like we need people doing the libertarian party thing we need uh liberty-minded people in both the republican and the democratic party influencing we need people outside of politics we need technologists we need entrepreneurs we need people in all facets of all industries everywhere like so often in these political discussions we kind of get into this you either do this or you do that it's like no we need to do all of the things if, if we're going to win this fight of what, you know, what, whatever we're trying to do, maximize freedom for everybody, we need people doing, we need people in every single facet of life. We need, we need cultural people. We need media people. We need people making movies. We need, we need all of these areas right now. It's like people get too locked in. It's like, should the libertarians be in the Republican party or the libertarian party? <laughs> like right. it's, it's much bigger picture than that. We need like a larger macro thesis of how the game is playing out. And to that point about libertarians maximizing our strategic potential, I think it really is important that we do cross party lines. We do work with people across industries, across you know political and cultural divides and, and try to work together on issues that we can all agree on. Um, but to avoid spending our whole show rehashing uh, old things and talking about comments, I think I'm going to push us forward here to talk about the news. If you would like to leave us a comment, uh, of course, like I said before, definitely do that in the YouTube comments below. And hit the like button as well. First up today, a uh, sad story out of Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, a young man, Tyre Nichols, was uh, beaten to death by five police officers in a, a very disturbing video that was released over the last week. Um, I'm sure you guys saw it. it. It kind of made some significant waves online and, and everywhere, and rightfully so. Caused protests to break out around the country. Uh just a, a brutal thing to watch and it, it actually sucks to have to even talk about it because it's awful and but it's 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 happening and so 
I think we're all responsible for discussing it. And from this perspective, figuring out, well, what are the libertarian prescriptions for preventing things like this from happening in the future? So David, I'll pass it to you. What are your thoughts? How do we how do we look at what just happened? Is it an individual issue? Are these bad officers? Are these bad systems? Is it both? What's your take? I think that's a false choice. I think it can both be looking at it from an incentives and system standpoint is perfectly legitimate. The problem is what I see when it's being analyzed that way by, for example, the Washington Post and other people who've been covering this, they want to force it into a particular narrative. And in fact, some of the most interesting components of this has been that that narrative doesn't fit because everyone involved in this situation happens to be black. With that situation, they're saying, well, it still might be racism, and here's why, because the system is. And they want to make the system analysis so that then they can get the reforms they want. And it's actually a functionalist argument. They're saying, we can't talk about there being bad apples, because if we do that, then reforms aren't necessary. And they're saying, that's a completely false choice. It can both be that the system isn't inherently racist, uh, because that gets very complicated. You start debating all these stats and figures about is it racist or not, uh, rather than saying, what are the incentives that are creating these bad conditions for police officers to act? And we know what those incentives are. We've we've established those. There are very clear political battles there. But we're so focused about talking about, is this bad apples or is this a system to actually focus on the system's incentives in actually getting policy change, like co- cohesion on the policy change. Uh, there's been a long time of debating uh, on other policy issues where we are able to you know, create a coalition by addition. We're not able to create that coalition because we've effectively said your choices are either be or either have police or defund them all, which is a completely false choice, right? Have police, but if you're going to have police, then have them have appropriate incentives so that they don't violate your rights would be a, a good start to that that conversation. Are there any starting points as far as what those incentives are? How do you change the the framework of the system? At least one of them is qualified immunity. That's the clearest, most apparent issue. Qualified immunity is a made-up doctrine of the U.S. Supreme Court that said uh, because they're told that they can do this, uh, officers are not accountable for what they do uh, when it comes to violating your civil rights. In this case, your right to life, right? Your right not to uh, cruel and unusual punishment. There's so many rights violations, specifically in this Memphis case. Now, the, now the good, uh, the, it's hard to say good news in any context here, but as far as from a, a police reform perspective, we do have, it, there, we've had much worse cases after something like this happened. Uh, before the body camera footage even came out, they had already lost their jobs. Uh, they are now being charged with murder. We, we still don't know a lot. We don't, there's a lot of speculation online about whether or not this was personally motivated, whether or not, or, or whatever. We don't know any of that stuff. But it, it, it where, where I think the systems analysis is correct is unless we, Unless we do something to change these incentives and change this system, we're not going to get dif- different police officers, right? Because even good police officers in a bad system is going to find themselves doing things that they don't want to do and are bad. Uh, that's how people work. We actually know that from all kinds of social science. Um, and uh, so that when I returning to qualified immunity, what that was was a system that said that if a police officer violates your civil liberties, they're not personally responsible. You can sue the, the police station, but you can't sue that officer. Well, the, the trick with that is that officers then know that I'm not personally responsible for what I do. And therefore, if you give someone the the one ring, the ring that allows you to be invisible and do whatever you want without consequence, even good people will behave badly. Yeah, actually, I recently saw a tweet and I forget, maybe you guys know who it's by. I'll have to uh, pull it up when I can find it. Um, but it said something like, if you want to change policing systems and qualified immunity, 
allow officers that, that violate people's rights to be sued and take the damages out of police pension funds and they will police themselves very quickly. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective because it's like, yeah, I mean, if, if you aren't personally liable in any way, criminally or civilly for violating someone's rights, of course, you're going to abuse your power. That's just that's just going to happen, right? You're going to have bad people attracted to positions of power that want to abuse it. Kyle, what are your thoughts on the situation? I'm very, I haven't paid super close attention to the police beating um, situation. Like I, I just know that it occurred. Um, something that I'm very sick of in a lot of these conversations is like the use of just calling something racist is it degrades all, all potential of intellectual policy conversations that could be had about this. Like we could be talking about qualified immunity. We could be talking about the pension stuff, but instead we get devolved into this, like, uh, it was, it was racist because black man beaten up by cops. And it was like, well, and the more we look into it, it was a bunch of black cops that beat up the, so it's like, is it really racist anymore? Um, it doesn't appear so <laughs> at least to, in my eyes, uh, from a very shallow look at it. I haven't looked too deeply into the, into the thing, but it just, it, it takes us away of being able to have any real conversation about how to fix these systems. And I, I don't think anybody, I don't, I don't think most people actually want to fix any of these systems. They just want to be able to complain about it on social media at the end of the day. Sort right. of a and, thoughts and prayers situation. And mm-hmm. from, and yeah, from a, exactly, yeah. from a perspective of, can we change this? This is a very transparent, we can change this sort of thing. Not at the federal level. This is something that can happen in your state legislatures. This is something that can happen on the local level. This is qualified immunity is completely made up by the judicial system. It doesn't exist in any law anywhere. It's not in the Montana, it's not in any state constitution or the federal constitution. It only exists as a judicial fiction. So all you got to do is pass a city ordinance that says not in here, not in our town, not in our state. So this is within reach. You just have to build actual policy consensus on it. And I think that's totally doable. Republicans have great reasons to support qualified immunity because they understand incentives and how they work. To support ending qualified immunity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Support ending it. Now, the only reason that why they'd oppose it is if the narrative here is defunding police mm-hmm. or do blue, blue lives matter, right? Which is a completely silly, you know... Dichotomy. Uh, yeah. It, it should, yeah. That's well, a false it's, it's all, yeah, it's all faux uh, virtue signaling, right? Like, it's like you either support the blue or you support the uh, uh, the black guy being attacked by the blue, right? Like, um it, it degrades any possible thought that we could be having on this just with all this shammy virtue signaling nonsense. And, and, a, and a part of this from the libertarian point of view too, and I would, I would be uh, feel bad if we didn't talk about it because uh, I feel Henri's ghost over my, over my shoulder. This is what happens when you give someone a monopoly, right? If you give them a monopoly, there's no option for them to be held accountable for what they do. We've given the state a monopoly of force and said, hey, please use this well. And, and the process should be, well, we, we have checks within this system if we're going to have this system at minimum. That's qualified. That's ending qualified immunity. And if we're not going to have that system, then allowing for people to be able to defend themselves, allowing for people to be able to say, I don't want your system. I want to opt out. I want my own system. Private for security or some alternative police force. Yes. Well, mean, and it's you, not just a monopoly. It's a monopoly on the use of violence, right? right? Like that, like that's probably the most important thing that we shouldn't have centralized. We should decentralize the use of violence in society. But now we have this unaccountable group that is able, that is going about, you know, through the use of qualified immunity, they can just be kind of immune to all the problems that they're causing uh, on the judicial side. Well, then the question though becomes, I think for most people who say, oh, you're, you're advocating for private policing, like, well, what happens to the court system, right? How, 
How does that transition work? What does that look like? Yeah, the idea of qualified immunity in a private court system is absurd. Yeah. Right? Because you would literally have to say, in my private court, when I could pick any other judge I want and get a, a, you know, a more fair decision, you're going to ruin your reputation by making the claim that these group of people, this private security company is above any kind of accountability for what they do. No one would then choose you as a judge because how could anyone judge that you would be fair in your justice, right? So it, it's important to understand. Like, So the, the libertarian con- conception of a private court is that you would have a market for justice where people develop a reputation just like you would for being a good chef or being a good barber. You develop a good reputation for being a good judge uh, of being fair and just and neutral and applying the law equally. Qualified immunity, it violates every single one of those principles. So, I mean, in the concept of policing as a monopoly violates those principles. And it's not, like we said in our previous episode, it's, it has historical context and historical precedent in English common law, right? Private courts were a thing. Right, right. So, I mean, it's, it's important to judge the difference. Some of, these, some of these things were governments, but they weren't the state, right? And that's an important... Um, Can you make that distinct? What's the distinction? There? Yeah, so they were governments over... They, they, they had authority, just like corporate governance, right? or local governments, but they didn't have a monopoly on force. Um, and we're talking about a very different time period, right? The, the way that politics worked in the 15th century is not the same way it works now. For sure. I only mean to make the point because it's just to make it that it's not that far-fetched, right? right that right. we could potentially find a system where this actually works in present day. Right. Well, are, most arbitration today is done privately already. That's true. Like so much legal cases is done, pri- like more than half of arbitration. So it's not that, it's not that crazy of a thought experiment to think that we could boost that number even further for these large societal issues like this. Uh, Robert P. Murphy and uh, uh, War Chaos uh, Theory, as well as uh, David Friedman's uh, Machinery of Freedom, mm-hmm. get into this really well from a historical point of view uh, about non-monopolistic legal traditions. We will make sure that Henri's ghost <laughs> speaks through me this time and says that you can get those books on libertyportal.com. <laughs> I'm going to move us forward here from one tragic and unnecessary conflict to another tragic and unnecessary conflict uh, being uh, Russia and Ukraine. News came out this week that Russia is amassing some 200,000 troops for what looks to be another offensive into Ukraine. We're nearing the one-year anniversary of this conflict on the 24th of February, and it it looks like things aren't heading closer to peace, at least not according to um, the Secretary General of NATO, who says, you know, it looks like Putin is gearing up. Um, We also see tanks rolling in from the United States into Ukraine. Fortunately for now, uh, President Joe Biden has said no F-16s. But if we recall March of last year, he did also say no tanks would be heading to Ukraine. So Kyle, what do you what do you think about what's going on in Ukraine? Where are we at, and uh, and what do you see coming? Um, I'm pretty fearful of the escalation on this. Like, I know Russian media right now, like a lot of Russian media pundits are already talking about how we're already in World War Three. We just ha- it just hasn't been formally recognized yet. Um, I think it's very important to understand exactly what Putin is looking for, and just kind of like the Russian government is looking for. I read um, Alexander Dugin's book, uh, The Fourth Political Ideology. Alexander Dugin is the uh, the kind of political science philosopher, professor, uh, right hand man of of Putin. And like, if you guys remember back in the summer, uh, one of Putin's main officials, like daughters, was killed in the car bombing. This this is his daughter. Like Dugin's a very important figure in the in the Kremlin, um, and. 
he lays out kind of a larger philosophical, political point of what Russia should be aiming for. And he wrote this like 15 years ago. And he talked about the fourth political ideology of there's like these three main ideologies, Western liberalism, communism, fascism. And if Russia wants to be great, they have to formalize a new ideology, a new great ideology that takes the best things of all three of those and takes and takes away all the scraps that, that you can leave behind. And like, if Putin, if Putin's really concerned about his legacy, I think that's what he's aiming for right now. And he's and he's been sitting here watching uh, NATO expansion happening for the last thirty years, moving closer and closer into Ukraine. Like they've basically been in Ukraine with all the coups that have been going on. Um, so he, he's kind of, his hands are kind of tied. Like he has to. Like if you're Putin in this moment, he has to move forward and continue the push in Ukraine and take as much territory as he can. Like this is this is a battle of resources at the end of the day. He and if if he wants Russia to be truly great on the geopolitical sphere, um, he his hands are tied. He has to be doing what he's doing. <laughs> like he's not just some crazy madman. Like I, I don't see if you're in his position, he has to do this stuff. Both could be true, though. He could be a crazy madman who does have to do these things, right? David but it's but it's very rare that these people are actually just crazy madmen. <laughs> like, they're, they're, they're never crazy men, yeah. right? I mean, like so it depends on what you mean by crazy, right? If it's just like this guy isn't living in accordance to the values that I think he should, is that a crazy person? A crazy person is someone who's not good yeah. at playing the game of the social order at a given time. Yep. Right. I can't deal with this situation socially. I don't see any evidence that that's Putin. I just don't. He doesn't hear voices in his head. He's not. You know, like, what, what are we talking about when we say crazy? What we mean is he's saying he's doing things that we don't like. And that's, pro- and when someone says that about another world leader, you're almost inevitably talking about propaganda. Yep. Let's, let's, let's review a quick, some propaganda for other leaders real quick. Let's do it. Uh, we, we've, we've, we were convinced in Gulf World War One that the real story of Gulf World War One or the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein were soldiers going into, in NICUs and murdering babies. And then that's where we were like, oh, we better go intervene in Gulf War. Gulf War. And I. those babies were in incubators and they were dragging them all out. Yeah. Like, whole- <laughs> Murdering babies in incubators. And this was like thought to be totally accurate. Yeah. And this was our justification for. Yes. So check out Scott Horton's book on the war on terror. Uh, and the uh, it, it, it uh, was enough already. No, it's the Afghanistan. It's the other one. Um Man, I'm forgetting it right now. But uh, it, well, whatever it is, you can get it at Liberty. Yeah, right. I, I think it was enough already. That was the Afghanistan. Time to end the war on yeah. terror. No, there's oh, two. There's no, the Afghanistan. Yeah. There's the war on terror. And this this was in the war on terror book. And, and, and very specifically, that propaganda is a good example. Uh, another one, um, Saddam Hussein was a crazy person. This is the same person we gave millions and millions of dollars of defense weapons when he was fighting Iran. And then we we're like a couple of years later, we're like, no, no, he's he's a crazy person. And uh, when right? you say he's a crazy person. Does that mean he wasn't gassing his own people? No, he gassed his own people with the weapons we gave him. Right. He, but was, then he, they, he didn't just gas his people because he had a bad attitude that day. He gassed his people because it was a different faction from the religion. He He's a Sunni and they were Shias and they were giving him a hard time. So he gassed them. And right. this has everything to do with the Sykes-Picot Agreement. <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's, Learning so much hey. from you. <laughs> well, and it's, it's similar with like Syria too. Like, like we've gone through two instances now where Bashar al-Assad allegedly gassed his own people. And we had like the person that was going on and uh, there, there's a woman, it's like a CNN correspondent. 
uh, that was down there on the on the ground was like going around smelling things. It was like, yep, that smells like chemicals. And it, and it turns out that this this journalist, the CNN journalist, is the granddaughter of Bashar al-Assad's like political opponent. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> like it's obvious propaganda. Right. And like you know, it, we we just keep going through the same thing over and over again. But people have like a collective amnesia; they forget these things. Right. Or or that we or like Bush. The reason why they attacked us in nine eleven is because they hate our freedom or they're crazy people or whatever. All those, even though. That has nothing that you could actually go out and read why what their motivations were, good or bad. It doesn't justify it. Understanding the motivations of a murder doesn't mean the murder was right. Right? I mean, just because even a crazy person, you need to understand their motivation so you can anticipate what they're gonna do next. So you totally. can catch the murderer. Yep. So this whole like as soon as they say they're crazy, you know you're being manipulated. And, also, if we can't talk to them too. Like right. if we can't open up lines of communication with them, that's always a, another red flag. And that's 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 a that's a great pivot back to back to Ukraine and the situation. What I see is an escalatory spiral we are in. The only thing that can interrupt that is actual diplomacy. And that means a call by the American people to say, we want you to get to the table and discuss this and actually debate this. I mean, between the the battleship that has the hypersonic weapons, between the obvious things that are going on, when you look at reports of our tanks coming in and then right, right after that, 200,000 more people. I mean, these things, these things are happening for a reason. They're not just random. Right. And it's cause and effect. If we don't take, if the American people don't step up and do something about this and actually start articulating why this is a concern, we're going to be going into World War III with the nuclear weapons this time. And that is a totally different situation. And this is a great segue into uh, this report from the Rand Corporation, uh, which we don't know what the Rand Corporation actually does, but somehow they're relevant. Uh, well, the amount of people who believe that the Rand Corporation is an arm of the CIA is substantial. Well, even the CIA then is telling us that this is a bad freaking <laughs> idea. <laughs> so they, they've got their pros list outlined here. We've got um, moderately significant benefits. Russia will be further weakened. So obviously it's a Western priority to weaken Russia. That's very ob- obvious from well, at least wait, this perspective. What's so important about that is because we sold this whole gosh darn thing on our compassion for the Ukrainian people, right? And in compassion for this act of aggression, which is totally legit. I totally agree. It's terrible that what, what Putin's done. But note that the State Department's ambition is not to defend the people of Ukraine. It's to weaken Russia, which mm-hmm. is a very different aim. Completely different aim. And it's even more starkly contrasted with the cons list, which is at least twice as long, maybe three, four times as long. Uh, and obviously highlighted by the highly significant cost of there would be a prolonged elevated risk of Russian nuclear use and a NATO Russia war. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty serious risk. Would the, the, <laughs> let's, let's, say, let's talk about highly significant costs that would end life on this planet straight up. Well, and if also there's a nuclear exchange on scale like that's that means nuclear winter, meaning you block out the sun. Like it's it's like we for, we forgot we've forgotten how bad a nuclear war could be and what that means for like feeding the world. It isn't that everyone dies in a nuclear fireball, although we would in Montana where we're at because uh, we're in a, we're in a um, buffer zone, a buffer area. Nuclear yeah, sponge. We'll or, take all yeah. the nukes. So the rest of you guys can die slow. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> the rest of you will die in nuclear winter, meaning there's no food. And, have, and, have and no, that, and that's also the destruction of farmland. You bomb, Montana, that alone is the is a is a agricultural GDP the size of India. That's a tremendous amount of food in the world that's suddenly just off the table. People will starve to death, and that is a that and that and not 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 just that, the the radiation fallout along with the nuclear winter becomes global annihilation. You there there's 
there that that is <laughs> that's not a highly significant cost. It's way way beyond that. That's a never should we touch. That is the most significant cost of all time. You also just need a little bit more compassion here. I see in the moderately significant cost that more Ukrainian civilians would die. And you were just talking about how uh, the compassionate thing is to help the Ukrainians and right here, right? Um, so wait, you're saying if we <laughs> don't have this conflict, fewer Ukrainians will die. Well, that's theoretically interesting. I'm not a geopolitical outcome. expert. It, it almost seems like we should be a pursuing a policy of peace where we engage diplomatically to say, hey, look, not everyone's going to get what they want. And I know there's a lot of emotions right now, and I understand that we get those, but the, the real diplomacy isn't done when everyone's already agreed on the solution. Real diplomacy is done when everyone disagrees, and you get them to the table anyways, and you say, how do we stop the murder? Well, I was like, I remember back a few months ago when Elon Musk was like tweeting out his stream of consciousness like he so often does, and he was talking about how uh, a good peaceful solution, he, he was basically laying out his thesis for a peaceful solution, and you had all of the Ukrainian governmental officials coming out and attacking him, and Elon's just like, guys, I'm literally giving you free SpaceX right now, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm helping you so much in this war, and you're just like attacking me on Twitter right now. It's just like, I don't know. Brutal. Yeah. Guy can't win, I swear. <laughs> Let's move on from this this sad, depressing global event and uh, come back to some sad and depressing <laughs> local <laughs> events. Just kidding. Um, no, they actually are kind of sad and depressing. We've got uh, some news here out of Utah. Uh, another kind of undercover uh, journalist, not associated with Project Veritas that I'm aware of, um, was able to capture some some video and audio of teachers uh, exposed talking about the ways that they're circumventing restrictions on CRT and, and teaching woke stuff in schools. Um, and David, you brought, you brought this one to us and I think it has to do with the pushback to that or the sort of the silver lining of the situation with Utah education. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So the, the interesting thing here, and th we actually saw this in Florida too, uh, state legislatures keep acting to say, Hey, we don't like critical race theory. We don't want it taught in our K through 12 public schools. So we're going to ban it. And the problem with that is it's it, it one critical race theory is very difficult to nail down as a philosophy period, right? Is I don't even know if you can really even call there's, it. A there's there's no real clear definitions, really. Right. So not only is it difficult from that reason, even if it was a more defined philosophy, it isn't it isn't the philosophy that matters. It's actually the values. It's the mental models of the world that matter. Um so with with those bannings, they're not effective. So we need to go deeper. On one of the other episodes, I kind of talked about how we have this public education system, not because, not just because of the reasons that we talk about, which is we want people to be literate. We want people to have a common understanding or raise the bottom up of knowledge. Those are reasons why we have it. But another reason, and if you look at the people who founded our education system, the real reason why they really liked it was it would allow them to indoctrinate the public with a certain set of values. And I mean that in the most charitable way possible, not even a bad way. Things like, hey, don't, don't beat people up. You know, like how do we elevate people's values? Well, if you're looking at ways to do that, a great way to do that is get to them when they're kids and try to tell them what to think about the world. And in some levels, that might even be a good thing. You might say like, Hey, don't be, don't, don't be judgmental. Don't be racist. Don't be these things and, and use the public schools to get that done. The problem with that is when you do that, you create resentment amongst parents and other people, if their values don't align because they don't have a choice, you're forced into the system. They feel like their ability to parent their own children and, and inculcate their values into their children is being usurped by the school. Correct. I mean, conservatives, uh, the, the, the core conservative thesis is that there is, there's a need for coherence between generations. 
uh, that, that you need to learn something from your fathers, that you need to iterate on and improve, but that you can't just throw it all out and just plan everything yourself because there's too much knowledge. The world's too complex. That's the best argument for conservatism. That idea, very well embodied in the current movement for education reform, is that you have parents who don't recognize their own kids after a couple of years of public school. And they're like, oh, how do, this is a problem, right? So uh, for the left wing, that is a virtue, right? And a lot of people who chose to go into the education profession did so because they want influence over kids to make the world a better place. In fact, if you go and do, do some work, uh, talk to a teacher who's maybe doesn't share these values, they can tell you about these many experiences that they've had uh, with teachers who are there, not because they necessarily even like the subject, but because they really like the influence they have on the next generation and inculcating values. That's a problem. And par- parents run across this problem. They're going to say, I want a solution. So the real solution is to end the monopoly, right? Fund education, not public schools. Public schools should be funded. There's nothing wrong with that. We could say, hey, public schools are important values for all the first things I said, not for the inculcation of values. But if you want out, there's this way out and you don't have to double pay. Uh, and that's what's happened. We talked a little while ago about how Iowa uh, just did this. Uh, before that, before we started the podcast, we had New Hampshire and Arizona passed uh, universal ESAs. We've now added Utah to that list. So, and it's funny that it came out in the same week, you know, both that report on CRT and this, because these are very much a cause and effect, even though they're on the news cycle at the same time. Absolutely. Well, and it's now it seems like the pushback about CRT and woke being taught in schools in Utah specifically, or these, these other states is less of a hot button issue because you have optionality as a parent. You can say, look, I don't agree with that. If they're just, if they're going to do that and I can't fight it, can't get on the school board, I can't influence it to reflect my values. I can at least pull my kid out and send him to a school with tax dollars, you know, following my child, not just going still into the public school system to get them out of that environment that I don't like. So. What's important is that when you go to the public school board and you say, hey, I don't like this. And if you don't change, I'm going to leave. They have a reason to listen to you. Right. Because yeah. your dollars follow you. And that's and that's what gets missed in a lot of these conversations is people say, well, just 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 run for school board. And it's like, well, I don't think you understand. This is a rigged system. <laughs> At least in, my st- in our state, it's a rigged system. They have special elections just for this out of the rest of the cycle because guess who gets to dominate those elections? They have, uh, they, they put the, the amount of resources that anyone else can dedicate if pales in comparison to the teacher's union that could choose a candidate and then advocate for the candidate that reinforces the values and the interests of the teacher's union. So I, I just, the idea that it isn't, that you can just, I don't know, vote different or just double pay is completely outside of the experience of your average parent who's just trying to make the bills and trying to make something work for their kids. Uh, not to mention just the values of needing to customize education. Not everyone's the same. Education should be diverse, not just the same thing for every kid, which is another problem of the current system. A, a big advantage that came out of the whole pandemic era was it caused a lot of parents to become very aware of what their kids were being taught because they were all locked in their houses together like, and parents were able to listen in on these Zoom calls and see. Like, I think, I think, can't underestimate the value that ended up coming out. Like, obviously, I think we're all kind of anti-lockdown and what happened with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But this was one of these those unforeseen consequences where it gave a lot of weight to the uh, for, uh, school choice arguments. Um, also, something that you said about resentment as well, something that I'd be very cautious with, especially if I was like the conservatives or like DeSantis in Florida and things like that, is 
a lot of kids, when they're in that young angsty phase, if you just start banning, like you can't teach this thing in school. Like I, I was one of those kids. If you tell me that there's something I can't learn about, I was like, I'm going to start, I'm going to start learning about that thing, especially at that age. It'll, and it'll be a very formative thing. It's like, cause like you're in your rebellious phase and it's like, now I'm going to identify with this ideology that we can't talk about. Like kids are like that with their, with this rebellious, with that, their rebellious teenage years, especially that's where a lot of their formative political thoughts are being had. So I'd be very cautious with the banning of, we can't teach this. It's, it's going to be a very difficult, you know, needle to thread though. So we're going to pass a bill that says banning Rothbard. Can't read Rothbard. And then all these kids are going to be reading an Adam. That. That's actually when I changed was, the world. I love it. When, when I was doing Genius. a, when I was doing a, um, political work, I remember talking with some college kids and I, I remember there being one college kid that was like one of the most formative political things that I ever had was there was a, my school library had this box of Ayn Rand books, like tucked away in a corner that, that nobody ever saw. And I just started, I just went through there and just read all those books. <laughs> and he was like, you know, it wasn't on the shelves and this kid just stumbled across it and it changed his life. Right. That's right. No, there, there is, there is value in that. Well, and I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that teaching CRT is good or bad or that they should or shouldn't teach it or should, shouldn't be banned. In fact, I think it's, it's it's actually pretty complex. It's more it's more complex than what I first saw. My inclination as a libertarian was originally like banning topics, not a fan, right? I'm typically a free speech person, typically in this situation. But on the side of it, if you have rules saying you can't teach bigotry and you're saying, well, in our state, we consider it bigotry to tell white kids that they are inherently racist and bad and bear the bear the responsibility for the low socioeconomic status of their peers on some metaphysical or ontological level. Well, you're, then you're, now you're just applying the law equally. You're going to say, we're not going to teach the Ku Klux Klan was great, and we're not going to do this. Well, I mean, that's actually a fairly solid argument. That's that's the Christopher Rupo uh, approach. And I'm not I'm not sure exactly where it should fall. What I do know is that we should allow parents to make that decision for their kids. And then I think it sorts itself out. If you want to send your kid to the Uber progressive school where they're going to learn that stuff, have at it. And let's empower you to do so. Even We'll go even further than that as society. I'll, I'll be a man anarchist and join you alongside and say, let's do that. But if you have a different set of values, let's allow you to opt out and go get and and, and by funding the kid, not the system. Hundred percent. On that note, I'm out of beverage here, so uh, we're gonna run that sponsor roll while I go refresh my zesty beverage. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. So we're going to jump back in here with some news about the largest YouTuber ever, I think, uh, Mr. Beast. We've got a tweet here. Um... Showing how in his latest video, Mr. Beast has cured a thousand people's blindness, which is pretty incredible. And in watching this video, I was surprised to learn that half of all global blindness is solvable with a 10 minute surgery. That blew my mind. And so this guy, Mr. Beast, who, if you don't know, he's the largest YouTuber. Uh, he's got hundreds of millions of subscribers. He makes hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe, maybe even in the billions of dollars now. I don't even know. The guy is just like ridiculously his, his prolific. His budget per video is like multiple millions of dollars. It's really? insane. Yeah. He's making tons of revenue. Wow. It's insane. I mean, I, I, he's got like 300, 400 subscribers across all his channels. So 
Sorry, 300, 400 uh, million subscribers. Sorry. (laughs) 300 million. Mm -hmm. He's like 24 years old. I had no idea how big he was. I knew he was big, but I didn't know that. My son, who's eight, knows who he is on site. That blew my mind. I was like, what? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think when you when you're at like my my age and lower, it's like yeah, you've probably heard of Mr. Beast. Huh. Yeah. Man, speaking of influence, I get it. I'm old, Kyle. I yeah, sorry, it. sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm the baby here. <laughs> I mean, speaking of influence, though, like you know, kids probably learn less in school than they do from Mr. Beast, and that's probably a good thing because this guy's actually doing a lot of good philanthropy with his wealth. Right? Yeah. He's not just some young dumb kid who's buying like sports cars and houses and stuff with the massive amount of money that he's making. He's actually you know, using it to uh, clean the oceans, right? And using it to cure people's blindness and like amazing, amazing things. And his whole vision is that he's going to die penniless. He's going to give all of his money away. Well, he also has um, other venues of of what he's doing as well, not just the YouTube side. Like he has the Mr. Beast Burger. He has like a Feastables, I think is what it's called, uh, which is like supposed to be healthy candy bars and things like that, much healthier than what you're normally going to get from the large franchise candy bars. Um and also he does like these large food banks too, like very philanthropic with everything he's doing. And what I love about it is, is, is such a great demonstration of the network effects for there being a market for private charity, right? And, and how we, we have this model that the state needs to provide charity, otherwise it won't happen. That is so pervasive in society when the most celebrated person, people we have do this, except for, and interesting on Twitter, when this, you know, thousand people blindness thing came out, a bunch of people said this shouldn't this shouldn't have to be necessary in the first place because the government should have paid for all this. Also, also another side part of that is uh, he's monetizing people's suffering for his own gain. Like that was another part of the argument. Yeah, but I think that's easily refuted by his track record of philanthropy. And obviously, I mean, he's stated, and you have to take him at his word on this a little bit, that you know he wants to give all of his money away and. His actions are backing that up. To I, this I'm, point. Always be cautious of that. That's also what Sam Bankman-Fried said with the FDX scandal. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is true, but no one is putting their money in Mr. B's hands expecting a return. That's yeah. true. Right. That's true. Right. And additionally, that he's entertaining people, yeah. and then he's getting compensated for it, which I think he should because that's mutually beneficial. And then he's helping people, which also is a good thing. Like, and all of this is voluntary. That's the important difference here. We are willing to put someone in prison for avoiding taxes to go to, you know, pay into Social Security. But this guy is 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 the bad guy here. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, I I just don't think that it, we we can have such a firm model that people are so selfish. And yet this guy is so celebrated at the exact same time. It, it just doesn't make any sense uh, if we integrated our values and actually saw that there is a market for people doing good things for other people and then maximize that market rather than minimize it. One of the things that we do, if we create a monopoly, you minimize competitive markets. Look at private education like we were just discussing. But in charity, we've done exactly the same thing. We said there's a monopoly market. And so then it's only edge cases that we're actually going to create a public market for where we got to raise funds and do these sorts of things. Well, this allows for entrepreneurs to come in and 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 solve problems, but we could go to much bigger scale with more accountability and better results if we had a private market in this space rather than this public market. Well, and is it even really charity if you are forcing your neighbors to give to the, the causes that you want to support by force, by way of taxation? Is that really charitable? Well, I, I, would, I would differentiate charity and virtue. So it's unvirtuous, but is it a charity market? I'll, I'll give it that. I mean, I don't think it's actual charity, not in the virtue sense. It's like, think of it like um, just kind of changing the definition of the word for the sake of argument. Sure. But yeah, I, to- I totally agree. There is no virtue in it. 
There's virtue in Mr. Beast doing this with his own money. There's virtue in him raising awareness of the issue and then driving people to further entrepreneurship in this area. There's virtue in even publicizing it and getting the word out about what he's doing because then it says, hey, this is possible that you can find voluntary ways to solve these problems. I see virtue all over the place in his favor. I see I see right. far less in using government to tax people by by violence to 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 accomplish the same ends. Absolutely. Also, Mr. Beast himself is just a very fascinating person because he he is creating exceptionally entertaining content, like you know, 10, 15 minute videos. And he's also just changing the media landscape as well. It's like <laughs> I, I think I don't think that these like old institutions that we have just in the media landscape, just like charity aside and all this, fully understand how much reach this guy has. Like he is getting per video, and he puts out videos like once every month, once every three weeks, something like that. Per video, he is getting something far beyond any of these media outlets could ever hope to get. And it's like we we as like a society haven't even like fully grasped the potential of that right now. And it's just like low budget too. Like the but the budget compared to like a regular media outlet and the types of content that they're trying to provide, like like game shows and things like that, is the overhead that they have to do is nothing compared to him. And he he somehow got this massive reach of people that any of these you know institutions would kill for to have, especially CNN. Yeah. <laughs> or, or just like, or just like these network TV shows and like game shows and stuff like that. Like he's, he's dishing out bigger prize money. He's dishing out, you know, like all this stuff with these like gigantic staves and overhead. And he, he doesn't have to do all that stuff. I mean, he's not a for profit, right? He's trying to give it all away. So, I mean, he, I guess he's got a little bit more uh, margin to work with. Well, there, there's a lesson to be learned. He puts like all of his stuff back into his video content too. Cause like uh, that, that squid game video that he had, that was like really his biggest video. I think it's got like I think it's like, I don't know. It's like, a, got like a billion views now or something. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like it's got more views than actual squid games. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, like the amount of money that they're just like pumping into the content to do this. And then it, it has the positive feedback loops, just more and more revenue keeps coming in. I, it, it's an inspiring thing of what he's doing just as an entrepreneur, I would say. It really is. And I would encourage uh, you guys, well, I think you probably listened to it. The, his appearance on Rogan is awesome. Yeah, it's great. So if you want to know more about him and what he's all about, that's a great conversation. Same with on Lex Friedman too. He, had, he did Lex Friedman recently. Yeah. Speaking of Rogan, uh, our boy Jordan B. Peterson was back on that show not too long ago and talking about, uh, well, this new pro-human consortium that he's starting in response, in opposition to the sort of apocalyptic narratives, as he put it, of the World Economic Forum. Um. And I thought it was really, really interesting the opportunity that he has as such a thought leader for, well, for so many people in the world to be the one to go kind of up against this really terrible narrative that's sort of been dominating the news cycle for the last several years with all their great reset agenda and stuff like that. Is there risk here? Does he run the risk of becoming the WF. What do you think? Is this a good idea? Bad idea? I think it's a great idea because I think he stole it from me. No, I was, I was playing. Flashback but- <laughs> to David saying, we need competition of the WEF. Yeah, right? Well, right. well, I think I, I think it was in uh, ESG, amongst other things. I was trying to say that a lot of these systems are actually voluntary. A lot of these are people making free choices. We shouldn't look at them all as top down. And if they're not that way, and if they are indeed you know, voluntary, why don't we compete with it? Start your own ESG that values first freedom. Companies that are committed to freedom. Start one that, and we talked one that was like conservative or Christian or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
that does in fact already exist. Someone's already taken an entrepreneurial step there. What we need to do is be less reactive and more entrepreneurial yeah. as a community in our political activism. This is a great example of that, right? We pulled together this podcast as an entrepreneurial effort because we see a way that we could try to create some value that hopefully helps the viewers, helps us, allows us to uh, to build our movement. It's obviously like giving East. giving Jordan Peterson some great ideas. So I think we're <laughs> off to a good start. So him him coming in and saying, hey, we should have a competitor to this, I think is a good thing. Now, will it change? Does it have to be? The vision I do like. Yeah, I, I had a Twitter interaction yesterday. Um kind of talking, it wasn't talking about this specifically, but it was talking about kind of this idea kind of in parallel. Um, I think Jordan Peterson's completely right on the psychology of if we're to do this whole civilization, we are a society thing. You have to have this like grand story that plays out that is like a collectively binding ethos that brings people together. And like um, America had that story for a long time and it's degraded over the last century or so, like slowly degraded where, you know, America was the land of the free home of the brave. It was like the place of opportunity um, is the place where you could uh, come be free, believe what you want, as long as you're kind of like working together and not being a nuisance in society. And, you know, that all started to change a hundred ish years ago and to that, I think largely led up to where we are right now. Um, and what Jordan Peterson's project is right now is that we need to rebuild a new story <laughs> at the end of the day. That's, that's, a, that's really the simple essence of what his thesis is. And I think that's completely true. Um, if we're going to kind of culturally be viable as a civilization anymore, a hundred percent. I mean, you look at the narrative, the story that comes out of organizations like the WF and it truly is apocalyptic. I mean, the climate alarmism agenda, for example, is literally saying like the world is going to end right? The world is going to end and it's all humans fault. And we are these parasites on the back of the planet and we should be exterminated essentially is like, you know, the boiled down essence of, you know, some of the more extreme views inside of that space. Not saying everyone inside of the climate space thinks that, but that's not super inspiring. That doesn't really bring people to the table to say, gosh, what can we do? What it, what it seems to be doing is, and not just that, but you know, lots of factors in our society are increasing rates of mental illness. You know, you're seeing people devolve rather than roll up their sleeves and say, okay, what can we do to make the world a little bit more livable? What can we do? Like he was talking about, um, you know, making energy as available and cheap as possible, solve poverty by making the poor people rich, right? Make the poorest in the world rich. That's a really inspirational story. That's something that a lot of people could get behind. And, you know, I mean, we find ourselves in a time when we really need it. Well, and also there, there's a degree of the whole society experiment that we live in or like belief in, you know, these government structures that we're in. A lot of that generally just has to do with a, a faith in a narrative. And as soon as that narrative starts to break down, uh, you start to see, I, I think, I think a lot of these issues that we that we've been talking about and you guys talk about on this podcast in general is we're watching the, we're watching the degradation of society because of like the absence of faith in its systems. Like nobody really believes anything. Nobody can trust anybody anymore. Everybody's at each other's throats. Like, it's kind of like, oh, you're on the other side of kind of like whatever religious paradigm that I'm existing in right now. Um, and what Jordan Peterson is doing here, at least attempting to do is kind of like, let's have a, it, it's similar to, uh, Brett Weinstein. Um, he did that whole like unity project mm -hmm. before. It's the same type of idea, right? Like, I, and I, I'm glad that there's very smart people with large, uh, 
kind of public personas that are kind of recognizing that this is something that has to be done if if this whole thing is going to kind of come back together again. 100%. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I also like the fact that he's countering the um, population narrative that exists out yeah. there. You know, that's like... Elon oh, too, right? Too many people like on two, the planet. Two very big people are uh, are bringing that to attention, which is good to see. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and to be clear for any listeners, uh, there's a there's a meme that we're overpopulated, and the problem with the environment is overpopulation. It's in fact exactly the opposite. We um, underpopulation might be a bigger problem over Certainly the next is century a problem. than overpopulation being a problem. And it's a regional question. Some areas, overpopulation is a real problem in, in the short run because of the size of families and birth rates and things like that when you're poor. Uh, the trick is, is if you have good systems with good incentives, free markets, rule of law, things like that, and your population increases, you get every person adds 1.7 to 2.1 more value than than, than, the, than what they consume, which would be in, in the uh, uh, abundance index less than one. The abundance index is a really interesting work by the Cato Institute to measure exactly how much does an additional person add to the world. The world average, if I remember right, is like 1.4, right? So every person, the world population go up is a good thing by their measurement uh, with the abundance index. In certain societies, it's much greater. And those societies, of course, are the ones that we would anticipate, ones with free markets, limited government, individual rights, rule of law. I also love uh, when Jordan Peterson was talking about it on Rogan's podcast, uh, he was bringing up the population thing of like, well, who was it? Paul, Paul Ellerick? Is, is that his Ehrlich. name? Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich. That's right. He's like, Paul Thanos. Er- yeah. Thanos of our time. Yeah. Paul Ehrlich says that we, we should only have 500,000 people. Maybe, maybe we can go up to a million. He's like, who gets to decide that? Do you get to decide that? I don't think so, buddy. <laughs> He's like the most Canadian, like like passive aggressive threat that I've ever seen. It was great. <laughs> Up yours, woke moralist. <laughs> it's great. I want to. I want to. I want to. Now we got to. Now we got to pivot. We got to criticize Mr. Peterson. Oh, that's true. This is the most concerning thing right now. I'm really worried about this because, yeah, love what he's doing. Uh, I have. I owe that man personally a debt. Like he's made my life better, but his stuff here on Iran and lately since he's joined the Daily Wire has been progressively moving in a interventionist foreign policy direction for whatever reason. And it's very concerning because you have people who really respect this guy like me. Uh, You have people who really like his, even his politics on a lot of levels. I don't like all of his politics, but I like quite a bit of it. And then he's jumping into, well, actually I'm going to talk about foreign policy now and it is tremendously dangerous in my opinion. Especially when we're talking about World War uh, Three type of stuff right now, right? Like Iran would be a, a central uh, theater in this conflict. Mm. Um, that's right. He's talking about. We'll go ahead and uh, play this video here where he is, this clip of him talking about his policy, his purported policy towards Iranian regime change. Regime change. If any of you have been particularly taken by this story today, you know, you could always put pen to paper and write your congressman or your senator or, and let them know that you're not all that happy about the situation in Iran and that if uh, the politicians got their act together and were stalwart in their opposition to this fundamentalist, totalitarian, mis- misogynistic, brutal regime, that maybe it could be pushed over and that would be a nice object lesson to totalitarian tyrants everywhere in the world. 
So effectively, he's he's advocating for Western governments to band together to overthrow the government of of Iran. And we'll turn it over to David, our resident uh, historian. Why is that a bad idea? It turns out if you overthrow regimes in the Middle East, they don't just magically fix themselves into Western <laughs> democracies. How many countries have we overthrown in the Middle East? We just have twenty. We years? just haven't tried hard enough, Dave. Yeah, I mean, like what? What is he looking at? I mean, to just jump to that place, I, I actually didn't do the full interview. I didn't listen to the whole, full podcast. I haven't either. So it, it I'm going to be, I want to just preface that. Maybe there's some subtleties here. But that is incredibly frustrating because it does not take into account anything in the history that we've had with Iran since the 1940s, right? I mean, like, if if you do that in ignorance to that whole story, how how do you how do you possibly have a sensible like policy response to a relationship that goes back that far. Uh, and then and I, I just, I, I'm outraged by the fact that he would gump, jump in and just like, oh, just write your congressman and let's just overthrow a regime because this person that I interviewed said it was a good idea. Come on. Yeah. It's, it's also, there's a useful parallel here with the Ukrainian conflict as well, where everybody feels like in March of last year, March was when it happened, right? March, February. That is like, that's just when the conflict started. <laughs> there's no buildup to it. There's not, there's not decades of, of, uh, NATO shenanigans and, and all this, uh, you know, kind of back and forth going on. It's just like, it just happened right there. Putin just invaded. It's just, it's just what he did. It's the same thing here where it's just like, we're, we're not looking at literally like century of history right here. Um, it's, it's. Jordan Peterson, of all people, should be able to kind of look at this at a much deeper level than this analysis. He certainly should. And I think that he is definitely due a little bit of admonishment for stepping so far out of his lane with something that's so clearly just uninformed. I mean, it's it's unbecoming of his brand, which has real weight. And like you said, I think there is real risk here to him influencing a lot of people that that respect him and follow uh, his work and respect his work. Like I believe we all do, but I do think that, you know, there's the potential here and having not listened to the interview myself either that he, I mean, Jordan Peterson's an emotional guy. Seems, seems like he just got out of this conversation with someone. He's obviously a little emotionally worked up and he's probably talking off the cuff and he may have just said something that maybe he really didn't have the intellectual or historical backing to to really see through. I'm hoping that's the case. Obviously, you know, he's been wrong on things before, and I think he's very forward about coming out and saying, hey, I was wrong on that. So we'll have to just see what his perspective is once the internet has had its way. There, <laughs> the there, there are elements of the people that he has around him as well that could be influencing his kind of changes on the geopolitical scale that aren't really his realm of expertise either. Like that's an important thing. Exactly. But, uh, you know, you know, like he is at the daily wire now and you know, the daily wire is going to be very active in like the Israel versus Iranian, you know, conflict. I, I think it's just the nature of, you know, it's like the network that he's on right now and that he has deals with. Um, those are probably kind of influencing his thoughts and the types of guests that he can bring in and, you know, all this stuff. Right. But the question is if he'll be held accountable uh, for this point, right? If if we see an escalation with Iran, if we, it gets wrapped into this whole World War III that we're building with Ukraine, China, and Taiwan, that's a problem. What's what's the accountability for Jordan Peterson in that? <laughs> you know, like when a bunch of people say, like, ah, well, I'm not that worried about it. Jordan said that uh, Iran is a bad guy, and I trust him because he has said things that were deeply, personally, emotionally important to me, and I get that mm-hmm. point of view. 
I mean, it's I, I what I my biggest thing is I think it's and to be completely honest, I think it's a bit of a betrayal of the many people who he got uh you know earned the trust of on something that he is an expert in that that was very helpful for a lot of people. And then to go in and say something like that, just off the cuff, is just it's a betrayal of a, of a, of trust. Well, then let's turn this and let's use our tiny, tiny platform to say, hey, if you disagree <laughs> with Jordan Peterson on this issue, write to Jordan Peterson and tell him you think he's wrong. <laughs> thank you. Yes, that's a great. Thank you for taking me out of my uh, negativity there. That's that's exactly right. I mean, uh, beyond that, like I think we need to make clear the case about why America's relationship with Iran has been so toxic for such a long time and how the how the State Department's at largely to blame for where we're at with Iran right now. Well, then let's plan to do next week, let's do a little segment on that very issue. The situation around Iran, we'll have hopefully some kind of update as to you know what the internet has has uh, said in consensus about Jordan Peterson's position here and, and we'll... Well, uh, it, it's, it's also frustrating in a sense where it's like, Jordan Peterson is such a Jungian and a Nietzschean in the things that he's, uh, you know, that he teaches. Like those are his biggest inspirations. And I am as well, largely thanks to him in some ways um, and his work. And he's just like not, if those are his biggest inspirations, his kind of attitude of just like charging in, you know, guns a blazing overthrow stuff does not take into account, like even the work that he is deeply studied on and like the amount of resentment that it will cause on the global scale. Like it just, it doesn't. And that's why I'm saying, I think this was an emotional reaction that he had to a conversation, a a personal conversation with someone. This isn't a, a studied, you know, foreign policy expert. This isn't a guy who's done a lot of research on Iran or, or anything for that matter in this realm. So And and another area that I'll I'll rag on uh, Peterson for is a lot of his like anti-anonymity on social media stances that he's been taking lately. Mm. It's so incredibly frustrating to to see that, like especially somebody who is literally getting his uh, doctoral license revoked from him in Canada right now. And like and not seeing the value of having anonymity in as you go about your life. It's just like, come on, man, like you should be able to see, see this from a mile away. Like I get it. You're a public figure. You're going to have like this disproportionate amount of haters that kind of come in these anonymous troll demons that you call. But there's also a plenty of people that just operate completely normally on like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As you always say, Jordan Peterson. I think this is a great example of, uh, why there should be no figure whom you respect so much that you can't criticize them and you can't disagree with them. Right. Jordan Peterson is not infallible. He has bad opinions, obviously. He makes mistakes just like the rest of us. And we have every right and we should stand up and say we disagree when we do. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to his Exodus series. Absolutely. I, I absolutely loved his Genesis series. Now I'm on Daily Wire Plus. <laughs> but it's, it's supposed to be coming out free for everyone eventually. So. Oh, that's right. Oh, cool. I did hear that too. So we're going to wrap today with a video clip from our friends at Davos. Uh, a little clip about... Brain transparency, which sounds as terrifying as it is. First off, a video. Uh, it's going to make you see the future and understand a wonderful future where we can use brain waves to fight crime, be more productive, and find love. Let's roll. Sensing your joy, your playlist shifts to your favorite song. Sending chills up your spine as the music begins to play. I'm getting you chills You glance right now. at the program running in the background on your computer screen and notice a now familiar sight that appears whenever you're overloaded with pleasure, your theta brainwave activity decreasing 
in the temporal regions of your brain. You mentally move the cursor to the left and scroll through your brain data over the past few hours. You can see your stress levels rising as the deadline to finish your memo approached, causing a peak in your beta brainwave activity right before an alert popped up, telling you to take a brain break. Your mind starts to wander to the new colleague on your team, whom you know you shouldn't be daydreaming about, given the policy oh, no. against intra-office romance. But you can't help fantasizing just a little. <laughs> but then you start to worry that your boss will notice your amorous feelings when she checks your brain activity and shift your attention back to the present. You breathe a sigh of relief when the email she sends you later that day congratulates you on your brain metrics oh, from the past so quarter, which have earned you another performance bonus. When you arrive at work the next wow. day, a somber cloud has fallen over the office. Along with emails, text messages, and GPS location data, the government has subpoenaed employees' brainwave data from the past year. They have compelling evidence that one of your coworkers has committed massive wire fraud. Was it that hunk now, from earlier? They're looking for his co-conspirators. You discover they are looking for synchronized brain activity between your coworker and the people he has been working with. While you know you're innocent of any crime, you've been secretly working with him on a new startup venture. Shaking, you remove your earbuds. What do you think? Is it a future you're ready for? Jeez. Hard no. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Now, now, important to remember that this isn't saying they're making a prediction about what this will be, not that they're saying we are going to make this happen. Right. Well, but is it likely to happen? I think it's entirely plausible. It's very mi minority report, right? Or 1984 or Willian, too, of like they can, you can actually monitor thought crimes in that regard. This to me feels like the continuation of that article that the WF put out called um, something like it's 2030 and you have no privacy and life has never been better. Mm -hmm. You remember that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the other day when we were talking, I was confusing that one with uh, you own nothing, nothing and be happy. happy. Oh, okay. But that, that one is the one that talks about, you know, this AI that senses what you need before you need it. I mean, this is just a continuation of that, which Again, yeah, nobody's accusing the WF of like rolling out the tech to do this now. But I mean, if they're and just because someone's presenting it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. Of course not. But this right. is certainly like in the general zeitgeist of their conversation. So I, I don't there's a, the Internet word for this is fear porn. Right. I'm going to get views by making people really afraid of this potential future. Yep. Uh, that said, I think it is concerning. Our systems for a world like that really, really matter. Are, and the systems are do they need a warrant to get that data if you Fuck if yeah they do that? yeah uh i'm sorry to swear well, yeah <laughs> but absolutely yeah. in our state they would right because we pass laws that that give you a right to your digital privacy uh and that's in our that's in our state constitution not all state constitutions have that in fact we know dragnet warrants are pretty common in the digital space so we're not, we're I mean, we're so far behind this. I mean, the, the the government's always way behind technology in the private sector, of course. Uh, but uh, if we don't get some activism in this area, it's not going to change in key states, and you're going to have a lot of people exposed to a government surveillance state when they're giving access to their brains online. That's a that's that is something to be aware of and concerned about. Now, what what always makes me hesitant in these spaces 
is because technology is one of the biggest things that make the world better for people in solving problems. And uh, we talked about biometric data ownership and things like that mm-hmm. in a couple episodes ago. And one of the problems in that space is just how you how you create certainty and uh, uh, consent without stifling innovation in right. important ways. Because the positive application of some technology like this could be to warn someone before they're about to have a seizure or something, right? Mm-hmm. Sensing brainwave activity wirelessly could be used for good. But a lot of these technologies do get developed in secret behind closed doors at DARPA or whatever. And then, you know, years later, through whatever FOIA request, we find out that these things existed or, you know, uh, they they get some sort of civilian commercial application. And so sure. my concern with it is if government is always behind the eight ball on technology, how are we to be sure that something like this doesn't already exist? Mm-hmm. We just don't know. So the one that we know the most about right now is Neuralink, right? And there's some really cool videos of like an ape playing ping pong with Neuralink mm-hmm. put in. That's 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 pretty interesting, right? And the ability to use a computer without using your hands has tremendous opportunities too, totally. for especially for disabled people, uh, especially for people who uh, use machinery for work, uh, um, uh, but maybe are getting old or uh, have less physical capability. I mean, there's there's so many ways in which you know being able to use your mind to compete with AI directly and with uh, with the interfacing with computers could have opportunities that you know actually secure the future of the world. Right, sure. uh, and that's actually Elon's one of the key reasons why he's investing in in the Neuralink ideas, so that human beings have a chance against AI. So I, I don't know. I'm um, I I, I want to say like, hey, the systems really matter, and you should be worried about this. And this is a, actually a good call for activism in the space of digital privacy and the standards that we use for government and the use of force. That said, we also have to be aware that you know large corporations could take advantage of this sort of thing too, and we don't want to be naive to that. And I think the important thing here is making sure that. End users understand what they're signing up for with regard to technologies like this, right? right. How many EULAs do you guys just click the box and move on? Right? I, I think that we're going to end up seeing a shift, and I think this will be a generational shift. Like, unfortunately, this is always how technological development ends up working. Is like you can't always get you can't get the old gen on board with what the new gen's doing because it's too complicated. They're not like up to date with everything. Um, but I, I know, at least in the crypto space, a lot of on a lot of chains, there's starting to be a lot of talk and uh, founders working towards decentralized identifiers, which is effectively a way for you to own your own data. And you can almost like, like if you wanted to give out your data for advertisers, you could probably actually like rent out your data for, um, um, you know, for whatever you're doing with your decentralized identifier. Um, and I imagine something like this would even would be something that would eventually kind of fall under that purview. So you can kind of like selectively choose where your data goes, who you can use it. You know, at the you're going to have to end up fighting. Like there's going to be fights on that front. Uh, Cause obviously there's going to be people vying for control of all that data. Cause like at the end of the day, you always want to like all these institutions are going to want to monopolize that data. But I think that there is like a, a freedom oriented solutions that exist in the technological sphere here. Um, and uh, some, oftentimes I think a lot of the legislation that might be putting forward is like, they're, they're almost just, old world, uh, like legislation trying to solve old world problems when the new world's already kind of on the frontier with it. Like there's, there's things that will be countering to this, I think. Well, additionally that if the software interface that moves first in, uh, collecting the data for your brainwave activity is, you know, double side encrypted with signatures on both sides and, you know, has a time lock that's permanently fixed in the blockchain where it, it gets deleted after 28 hours or something like that. 
Whatever, yeah. what, if, if there's actual technological solutions that can't be changed by governments or can't be manipulated by large influence actors. And if you're the person that knows how to actually do that stuff in that space, this is a great opportunity for you to make the world a better place for liberty by being the first one to move and say, I offer the best solution for this that ensures, you know, your future and that the government or bad actors can't get all your brainwave data and use that against you. So yeah. Cause like the big thing will be like, if these governments come in and be like, no, you have to give your data forward. Or if like, you know, this is, this would be a, a more of a voluntary transaction is if, you know, you join a company, some big corporation and they're like, you have to share your brainwave data with us. Like, right. like th that's where, you know, there starts to be more sticky points, but you know, you can always choose not to join those companies. You always kind of get into that argument with most things. Right. But, right. um, yeah, very interesting. I, I missed that video. At least if we if we if this did exist, we would know for sure if Jordan Peterson was just talking out his ass or if he really is a statist. <laughs> well, he's definitely a statist. Like at the end, like not everybody's going to be some uh, ANCAP libertarian like the rest of us. But <laughs> you can't expect. But we can that. try. He gave us hope, though. He was talking about time preference and the Austrians, and he had like so he gave me a moment there. I was like, oh he man, still talks, we're going to. He get still up. talks with the Austrian folk. Yeah. He, I, he often talks with the wrong Austrian folk. But <laughs> well, see, this is our mission. We need to just develop our audience, get to a point where we can have Jordan Peterson on the podcast, and we can just set him straight. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's what you need, Bucko. <laughs> Here's what you need, Bucko. You need to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Kyle, for coming and yeah, hanging out sure. with us. Been a lot of fun. Has been fun. David, always a good time. We're going to send you off. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. 